following is a true story and contains graphic details of a violent crime. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Murder at Land Between the Lakes. This is episode three. Thank you again for listening to our podcast. Since the last episode of Murder at Land Between the Lakes, we've been picked up on Apple iTunes. So you can now listen on almost any place you would normally listen to your podcasts. Carla and Vicky's story is now being heard not only nationwide, but around the globe. With over a thousand listens already, we've had listeners from as far away as Australia. And that is thanks to all of you. The more we share their story, the more we can demand answers. I thought we could start off today by telling everyone a little bit about us. Or maybe about who we aren't. (laughs) We are definitely not law enforcement. We're not trained psychologists, lawyers, therapists, or even professional journalists. But what we are, we are concerned citizens that think the community and family of Carla and Vicki deserve to see justice prevail. In saying that, we would like to preface by saying everything we say and report in this podcast is what we have heard and uncovered. We are recording week by week as we are receiving information in real time, the recollection of a crime that happened 40 years ago. Some information is hearsay, some is fact. We try not to add in our opinions or bias and stick with what we are being told. And as we are finding out, there are two sides, no wait, actually sometimes three or four sides to every story. But somewhere in the middle of all of these stories lies the truth. Lainey, it sort of reminds me of when I see ridiculous headlines on tabloid newspapers in the checkout line at the grocery store. Most of the time, it seems like a crazy, unlikely story. But later on, you find out that a fraction of that story was actually true. That maybe a tiny bit of information was taken from a story and then sensationalized for headlines. Amelia, that's actually a great lead-in to the start of this week's episode. This week, we received a tip from someone who had information about seeing the girls before they went missing. After a long phone interview with our caller, this is what we learned. Our caller was a cashier at Uncle Joe's IGA in Dover. The cashier clocked into work at 1 p.m. on the day the girls went missing, September 17th. She vividly remembers both of the girls coming into the store with Randall Riggins sometime between 1 and 4 p.m. To her recollection, the time was closer to three o'clock. They arrived in a van that was yellow, greenish color, and they purchased a pack of cigarettes. So listen close. This next piece of information is very important. When they left, Randall got in the van, but the girls did not. They left on foot, so they started walking. Is this when they started their journey back home and then spotted by the man in the blue truck? The next day, the cashier heard the gossip that the girls were missing. She called the sheriff's department and told them that she saw them on the day that they were missing. To her knowledge, they took her statement over the phone, but no one ever came to ask her in person about her encounter. Even after the girls' remains were found, no one circled back to her to ask her more questions. This cashier could quite possibly be one of the last known people to talk to the girls. It wasn't until 2016 
A TBI agent showed up on her doorstep to ask her about the call she made on the 18th. As she repeated her statement, just as she had in 1980, she told us that he quickly told her she had to be misremembering who she saw because... Wait, wait, let me guess. Because Randall Riggins was reportedly in jail. You got it. Whether or not Randall Riggins was incarcerated on that day is just one of the many questions that we have as we're going through this case. Um, for instance, one of the other things that Amelia and I have been struggling with is the timeline of the girls. We now have eyewitnesses and statements from folks who saw the girls at the furnace picking up candy and crackers. Um, and then we also have an eyewitness who saw the girls at the IGA purchasing cigarettes with Randall Riggins and walking away from the IGA. We also have a third eyewitness that saw the girls talking to a person in a blue truck. And that was in the location of between their house and the furnace. Now, all three of these locations, their home, the furnace store and the IGA are all around, are all actually right on Route 79. And the place where their bodies were found um, and land between the lakes is off, actually right off Route 79 as well. So just thinking through all of that, right now we have the girls purchasing the things that they said they were going to purchase when they left their house. They left their house on foot. They were not seen again except by the folks at these two stores. They were seen with Randall Riggins, um, and then they were seen on foot, and they were seen talking to a fella or a person, uh, the composite sketches, the fella in the blue truck, and that was the last time point that we have of the girls being seen. So that's where we are right now with the timeline before they went missing. Over the course of the last few weeks of our investigative research, we have heard from numerous sources and even received anonymous tips that the police were called to the girls' residence more than once leading up to the days of their disappearance. Someone from the house called the authorities because a drunken and disorderly man was on the lawn taunting and threatening either one or both of the girls. When Deputy Albert Viers arrived, the girls told him that they were scared and asked Mr. Viers to remove the man from their property. For the sake of this podcast and to protect all of our sources, we're going to refer to this perpetrator moving forward as Chuck. Stewart County Deputy Albert Viers testified before the grand jury that it happened twice and about two weeks before their disappearance that the drunken trespasser was chased away from their home. He told a source that he always regretted not arresting him. He said that the notes he made and turned in have now come up missing. So to clarify... No official report was made, but Deputy Viers did make Chuck leave the property. And, according to our source, Chuck left in his vehicle. So the questions I have are, since Chuck left by vehicle, what vehicle was he driving? And he was drunk and driving? 
Well, it was the 80s. <laughs> we wanted to take a quick break to say thank you to everyone who has supported this podcast. With your support, we have confidence there can be justice for the family of Carla and Vicki. Since the podcast first launched, we have received numerous calls, tips, and well wishes. You can call us or leave a note on our Facebook page. We will keep your name anonymous as you wish. Here is one of the questions we received this week. Hi, this is Regina Allen from over in Henry, Tennessee, and I was just wondering if anyone ever checked the phone records. Thanks so much, Regina, for giving us a phone call. We actually had that exact same question, and we've been challenged with actually finding out what the phone number was for the girls at that time. So I know when I was growing up, I still remember the phone number of my best friend when I was in sixth grade. So if anybody out there has the phone number for the girls of that time, um, please let us know. You can let us know through Facebook. You can let us know through the podcast app. Um, But we would love to be able to track that down and we will try to follow up with that information once we figure it out. So Amelia, I understand you were able to speak with one of the crime scene investigators from the day the girls were found. Was he able to share any details with you beyond what we already know from the autopsy report, which is just basically what the girls were wearing and that they were shot in the back of the head? Yeah, actually, he was able to share several details about that scene. Given that the girls were found 17 days later, their bodies were badly decomposed. I want to spare the family and all of our listeners the brutal details about the conditions of their bodies. But to give you an idea of how badly their bodies were decomposed, it was actually their clothes that kept their bodies intact as the investigators respectfully removed them from the scene. That scene continues to haunt this investigator to this day. However, the crime scene investigator's job is also to investigate the surrounding area as well as the scene. The investigators noted and photographed a tree nearby with blue paint on it. Wait, so do you mean blue paint like in the blue truck that was seen talking to the girls? Well, potentially. I mean, it's circumstantial. But the investigators said that it appeared the killer or killers must have left in a hurry and scraped their vehicle against a nearby tree, leaving blue paint residue on the tree. He noted that the girls' shoes were found away from the girls' bodies. They surmised that they fled before being shot. Their remains were found in a shallow and unfinished grave. He also shared his opinion that he believes that the killer or killers were known to the girls, that they knew who they were getting into the car with. He had heard that they were not the type of girls to get into a stranger's vehicle. Hitchhiking was still pretty popular in the 80s, but from everything that we have heard, from the families and from the locals that knew the girls very well, they say that the girls would not have gotten into a car with strangers, just as we were thinking as well. Also, this is another, you know, odd piece of evidence that was found at the scene. 
The investigator told me that about 100 yards away from the bodies, there was a trash bag found. And so after they collected the bag, um, they sifted through it, you know, hoping they'd found some evidence. And they sifted through it, and it turns out, and this is really, really weird, but true, um, it belonged to one of the people involved in the case. And evidently, he just decided to dump his trash in the woods. <laughs> I understand that this was very embarrassing for the department and this individual, but we have heard, but have we heard like why he decided to use the crime scene to dump his personal trash? I mean, do we have any idea what was in the trash once they went through it? And were there any consequences for this indiscretion? I mean, I get that littering in the 80s was different than it is now, but come on, that's kind of strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm hearing now that Randall Riggins is out of jail. The girls were spotted with him, but then parted ways and then potentially picked up by someone else they knew that drove a blue truck. And that may be the potential murderer or murderers. Oh, and also one of the investigators coincidentally dumped his trash in the same location as the bodies? Um, well, that is what you're hearing. That is what we're all hearing at the same time. But just wait until next week as we talk about the potential eyewitness that reported that after hearing shots, as he only assumed were hunters, he saw not only a blue truck speeding out of the area at Land Between the Lakes, but also a brown car. Earlier today while we were recording, we received a phone call from someone who remembers a day, very clearly, a rainy day, that they saw Carla and Vicky walking around town. And this couple offered to give Carla and Vicky a ride home so they wouldn't be walking in the rain. And this couple remembers Carla and Vicky declining their offer, and it seemed as though they perceived them as strangers. And the wife of this couple was actually a distant relative to the girls. So she did know them, and but Carla and Vicky didn't seem to know them very well. So even though she they did know the girls, and the girls didn't know them, um, they did not want to get in the car with them. I tell you this because it seems, you know, we're hearing more and more often from people that Carla and Vicky would not have gotten in the car with a stranger. So I'm going to play for you a little snippet from my phone call conversation I had with this gentleman on the phone. And it just further proves what everyone is telling us, that the girls seem to know their abductors wasn't not just anybody that they would even speak to. You know, you had to get to know them and they get to know you. Mm-hmm. A stranger, and you can quote me on this, no way would they get in a vehicle with a complete stranger on their own accord. Next time on Murder at Land Between the Lakes. Hey, lady. Hey, Amelia. What's going on? Hey, so so it wasn't long after you left. Um, I received another phone call um, prior to the one that we got while you were here. Yeah, who called? Um, so I, um, well, I'll leave his name anonymous right now. But anyway, you're not going to believe what he told me. So... All right, so we already talked about the evidence bag, that you know, the one garbage bag that was at the scene. Yep. So another bag of evidence, or 
I don't know, I don't know if it was all the evidence or some evidence that was collected, it was all put into um, the car of a TBI agent. And the evidence was taken, was driven to Nashville, apparently. And miraculously, that evidence was stolen out of that TBI agent's car. The evidence was stolen out of the car, but nothing else? The evidence is gone. So that's why there's no evidence in this case. Like, that's why there's, like, hardly anything for this case. The evidence was, quote, unquote, stolen. Hmm. That sounds unusual. I mean, again, it's part of this case, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you said it. But um, I think everything just starts to, like, none of this makes sense. But how can this happen? Like, how does evidence just go missing? I don't know. Was the bag of trash there, too? Was that part of the evidence? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that there was real evidence in that or if it was just literally the trash. I don't know. Do we have any idea, or was he able to give you any insight into some of the items that might have been collected that were being considered evidence? Like, were there any um, items around the area that they picked up that might have had DNA on them or clothes or, I don't know, any type of food or drinks or anything like that? I don't know what all was collected, but I do know he told me how contaminated the scene was from everyone that came on the scene, that immediately the scene was contaminated from cigarettes, everywhere and everything from cigarette butts to people walking around the scene and driving on the scene when they shouldn't have been. So That's interesting. Do you, do you think that that is due to the fact that it's just rare for them to have cases like this? Or do you think they were really just disregarding the the crime scene altogether? Mm, That's a good question, right? Maybe somebody didn't want the evidence to be found. I don't know. I think Mm. someone else knows. It definitely sounds like it could use a little bit more explanation, right? (laughs) I think it needs a lot of explanation. I think somebody owes a big explanation. All right, um, well, of course, after we, you know, record, we get all these phone calls, but. I know. That's the way it always is. But that's actually probably um, because people are listening and people are thinking back and they are thinking about the things that they recall from that time period. And they're looking to share those, you know, that information. They just haven't had anybody to share it to in, like, a long period of time. So it's it's awesome that people are actually sharing what they know now. No, I agree. I, I think that, you know, 40 years has been long enough, and people have been hanging on to things. And people are, you know, they're, you know, recollecting things, and they're remembering things, and like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And so people want to share. And they know that. And I think it's really the only way – you know, a case like this gets solved, right? I mean, especially if the evidence is gone. If the evidence is gone, the only way it gets solved is by, you know, people 
you know, putting things together and using, you know, the same word I keep using over and over is crowdsourcing. I mean, people keep pulling all their ideas together. Eventually, everyone will come to the same conclusion. Yep. No, I totally agree, Amelia. Okay. Well, we spent a lot of time together today, so (laughs) (laughs) I'll let you go. So I just thought I'd fill you in on that. Thank you. Thank you for giving me a call. All right. Bye, Lainey. Take care. Okay. We'll talk soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to Murder at Land Between the Lakes. Please leave us a five-star review on Apple iTunes and tell your friends. The more we share the girl's story, the more information we can gather by crowdsourcing. And find us on Facebook to see photos and follow-up discussion.